0: Pray, Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. Thank you, Lord, that you are so near. Thank you that you are so present with understanding our thoughts, our cares, our concerns. Thank you that you're a merciful high priest, Lord. Thank you that you've given us your word to know you. And to transform us, Lord, I pray this evening that you would now work through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us, Lord. I pray that none of us would leave here the same. And I pray, Lord, for those secret pains and those secret frustrations and hurts. I pray that you administer them tonight we pray this in Jesus name amen all right can you say hello to a couple of people before you sit down all right everybody come on in have a seat go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of first Corinthians chapter 4 hope everybody is doing well tonight it's always good to meet with you on Wednesdays, and get into the Word together. Amen. Amen. As we get into the book of 1 Corinthians tonight, we're going to begin in chapter 4, and we're looking at the Apostle Paul dealing with a church that has been culturally relevant, but spiritually irrelevant. We're looking at a church that looks more like the world than it looks like salt and light. We're looking at a church that has embraced uh, the things of the world more than the things of God. We're looking at an immature church. We're looking at a church where the Apostle Paul wanted to speak to them in spiritual terms, but they were so immature and un or not growing, that they couldn't. he couldn't even talk to them spiritually. So it's a, a pretty difficult um, place to have a church because of the cultural center that it was and the hedonistic lifestyle that was prevalent in Corinth. Paul started the church. He was there for 18 months. I think that was the second longest place that he was. He was in Ephesus for three years. That was the longest. And he's actually writing this letter to the church in Corinth from Ephesus. And so uh, as we start to look at the things going on there, we see what happens when the world enters the church, when the world has a foothold in the church, where the church is embracing ideologies and philosophies that God saved them from. And it's, it, it is difficult. The church is always having to push back against culture. We live in a time where culture is brought into the church. In a way where the church is very similar in many ways to the church in Corinth. And it is uh, what God's design is for the church. So we saw how uh, there's there infighting divisions, uh, envy, uh, strife, just all the ugly stuff that just it just makes you sick. Um, you see that in the world, and then you see it in the church. Uh, the church really should be all pulling in the same direction. But uh, a lot of times the church is not pulling in the same direction because when selfish motives are involved, or as Paul said, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he he said that you're carnal. So he, he said that people in the church, when he says carnal, he's, he's saying that you're Christians, but you're living a worldly life as a Christian. And because of that, everyone has their own ideas. Everyone's pushing their own agendas. Everyone's looking at it as uh, we want to be cool. What's best for me? I want to rise up the ladder and be in control and power, just like people in the world do. And so as he's addressing these things where you find it's very uh, important for us um, to understand what the church should look like, our attitude as the church, um, what it should be towards God and towards other people. And uh, as Paul addresses them, he starts off in chapter four and verse one, speaking Uh, Just how they they were followers more of certain people. And they made that a a huge hill hill to die on. That's part of their division among themselves. Some were considered Apollos followers. And some were considered Peter or Cephas followers. And some were considered Paul followers. And they're just dividing over those things. And so Paul... He, he's addressing those things in, in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. where He says, let, let a man so consider us, speaking about Paul and Apollos and those who people were dividing over, let, 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 let you consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise will come from God. The Apostle Paul is painting a true picture of what it means to be a servant of Christ. And as he does that, He puts it in a way where nobody would crave or desire to be like Paul or Apollos or Cephas. They wouldn't want to do that if they truly understood what that meant. He's saying that you are elevating me and Apollos and Peter, and you're looking at us in this this light, and you're dividing because of that. And he's saying, what we really are, are servants. He's saying that's what we are. And the word that he's using for servant there is the word that describes a third level galley slave. That's not something that someone from Corinth or in, in our culture, even the way people view a successful modern church that's very appealing to the masses, that looks similar to the world, just you could call it church instead, that the pastor is seen as an influencer, and entertainer, and often judged on how well they dress and how slick they are, and Paul's saying, you're doing that and you're, you're looking at us in a certain way. And he said, what we really are is we're like slaves, the lowest third level galley slaves who would row a boat at the command of the supervisor. So that wasn't something that would be very appealing That wouldn't be something where someone would envy that. And he's saying, so let's let's really understand what it means to be a servant of Christ. It means that you are not seen, that you are working for the Lord as a third level galley slave would work for the supervisor. And you may be unnoticed. You may not be thanked. You may not be patted on the back. You may not have a lot of followers on social media, and he's saying that's what it looks like. It looks like the lowest of the low. And then he uses another analogy, a a steward. So a steward is someone who doesn't own anything but takes care of someone else's things. So maybe think of uh, like a house sitter. You go on vacation somewhere and you have somebody house sit for you. Well, their job is to really take care of your stuff. And you hope that they do it well. So when you're thinking about having someone stay at your house and take care of your stuff, you're gonna think about someone who's responsible. That's what you're gonna be thinking. Someone, who can I think of? You're not gonna think, well, when I leave, this person is gonna invite all their friends over and have a raging party and thrash my house. You don't wanna pick that person. And as he's saying this, now he's, he's anchoring in their mind what the reality is of someone who's truly serving the Lord. Now, does that speak to our culture or what? This it just seems like such a, a lost thing. And our culture has been infiltrated so much where Christians don't even know what a, a church should look like. Because they are often, we are often taking our cues from the world. And and Paul is saying, let's come back to what it really means. And and as Paul says that, he finishes in in verse uh, verse 5, and he says, let each one's praise come from God. So that is so important. Because for the servant of God... We will not last unless we understand that it is an audience of one that we serve. And it's not up to us to take the prerogative and go about God's business our own way. We don't have that prerogative or right to do that. And so as we begin to sort of reshift our understanding of what it means to be a servant of God, we have to think, well, Paul would have given up if it meant that in order for him to be successful, he would have to be very cool and cater to the society and the culture. And you may recall that Paul even said, I didn't even try to use the way people spoke of the day. I didn't use techniques, persuasive words of the the Greek Greek people. But it was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. And do you remember why he said that? He said so that your salvation would be in God and not in man. Or your faith should be in God and, and not in man. So he's hitting right to the heart of Western culture Christianity. And then he goes on and explains this, and he he draws this contrast between his life and the life of those leaders in the church at Corinth. Watch this. He says, "Now these things, brethren, I have figurative, uh, figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. He's talking about the analogy he just used. And he's saying this analogy of a a servant, a third third level galley slave and a steward. He's saying I'm using those as analogies for me and Apollos. Those are the primary two people that people were dividing over in the church. And he says the reason is that you may learn in us not to think what, or beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. So what he's saying is, please understand there's no reason to divide, and there's no reason to be prideful. So when he says puffed up, he's saying that there is a lot of pride that people are putting, saying, well, I'm a follower And they were prideful about it to the extent where they were dividing over it. So that's what we can do uh, with churches, right? So just to bring it home to our lap. Well, I'm of Calvary Chapel. And just have a pride and just think, well, if you're of another church, you're not really a Christian. You're not cool like us. It's just that kind of thinking. And Paul is saying, there's, there's all this pride. Your pride is in following people. When in reality, you shouldn't be pr- proud about anything. And Paul previously had said that if he was going to glory, or in another book, he was going to glory in the Lord. If he was going to boast, he was going to boast in the Lord. He says in verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that We also might reign with you. Paul's using sarcasm here. He's saying, look how high and mighty you guys are. Look at how rich you are. Look at how people view you. And he's saying that you're reigning, that he's speaking to those who are in charge of the church there in Corinth. And he's, he's saying, boy, wouldn't it be great if you were really reigning? He's referring to the millennial kingdom. He's he's speaking to the fact that in this world now, that we don't reign. We're not in control. We're not in power. That'll come later when Christ comes back, but not now. He's saying you're acting like you're living in the millennial kingdom. You're living high on the hog. You're forgetting that, that your life now is to be a servant and a steward not to look and like a king. You're acting like a king. You're acting like you're famous. You're living like Hollywood stars. And in verse 9 he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. What a different picture. You guys are famous Hollywood stars living high in the hog, acting like you're kings of the world. Look at us. We're running for our lives. People are trying to kill us wherever we go. What a difference. He says, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He's he's saying that our lives, people are looking at our lives, and he's using this uh, phrase that would be familiar to those in Corinth, to where when a Roman emperor or yeah Roman emperor would conquer a land, they would come back to their hometown, and they would be in front. It'd be a big parade. And everybody would be cheering them. They would be victorious. And everybody would look at them and say, they're amazing. And then behind them in this parade would be the spoil that they took from wherever they conquered. And behind them would be the slaves that they would be leading to the Colosseum to go to be killed by the lions and he's saying that's what we're like when you put things in that perspective there's not a a lot of envy of having a position like that so imagine you were told this imagine you were told look At the end of this evening, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you would have to decide if you wanted to do that based on the fact that if you went out those doors, you'd be a hunted person. Do You know, there's people in the world now like that, that if they commit their life to Christ, it'll cost them. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look at you, and, but something's not squaring up here. Look at what we're going through. And the reason he's saying that is what I pointed out in the beginning is the fact that they were living like the world. So everybody loved them. If you say you're a Christian, nobody's going to have any problem with that if you live like the world and act like the world. But if you start to truly follow Christ, people are going to have a problem with that. And you'll see. You start to follow Christ. Many of you know that. It's going to be a problem. He says in verse 10 we are fools for Christ, for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. And we are poorly clothed, and we are beaten, and we are homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scourging of all things until now off scourging is someone that be on a, a ship that maybe they would get sick or they're afraid that they would spread a virus. So they just throw them over having no value on their life. And so this is the reality of what Paul is saying. This is what it looks like for us. Now, why is it looking different for you? find that very interesting and it does not mean that we should try to be homeless and try to have people chase us and those things but what it what it does mean and what paul is pointing out is is our faith genuine are we really following him because when we do our life looks very different than those who live for the world so in verse 14 He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children to warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul's saying that The things that I mentioned, I went through for you, and you're saved now. He said, there should be some credibility that I have with you because of what I went through. Those things he mentioned, he went through that. We read through the book of Acts. If you didn't do that with us, read through the book of Acts and see what happened with Paul. But he did that for them. He said, I should have some ability to speak into your life. And he refers to himself sort of like a spiritual father. And it's interesting because he says you have many instructors. But you just have one spiritual father. I find that interesting because we live in a time where we have many instructors. And we have to be very careful if you're online listening to a lot of different people, just be careful because it can be confusing. And there are false teachers out there. And We live in, in a time where we, we just so much information is available to us. If you Google certain Bible questions or things like that, make sure you look at the... The actual website the url code i think that's what it is but because a lot of times you'll see that the uh, church of jesus christ of latter-day saints will come up they're really good at being like the top one when you ask a bible question you don't want to go there you don't want to learn unless you're studying to see what's wrong But just be very careful. And Paul is saying, you're treating me like I don't have any right to talk to you about the things of the Lord. And he's sort of using his credentials as one who sacrificed so much just to see them saved and be able to preach the gospel to them. So he says in verse 16, in that regard, he says, he says, I urge you to imitate me. And when he's saying that, he's Referring to the things that he just said. To follow Christ, to be humble, to allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct you and keep the world out of your life. God saved you from the world, so don't go back into the world. Paul is pushing out a blending or a mixing of faith in the world. He's pushing away the darkness. He's fighting for the integrity of that church. And he's doing it by giving them examples of his own life and then preaching. And his own life was an example of Christ-like. It's not my will, but your will be done kind of life. It's God adding the increase, not man manipulating the increase. And when the the church loses its purity, there's nothing. And it's important, and that's why the Word of God is so good for us to all have on our laps, because it pushes out the lies of the enemy, the lies of the world. It keeps us all dialed in on the same page to the truth. But if we were just sort of to take a a little scripture and then the whole rest of the time just speak about worldly things and all these things, we're going to lose something there. My biases would come in. There are scriptures that I don't look forward to teaching, but I teach it because it's there. My friend uh, Dave Pierce, Calvary Chapel, Fort Collins He told me to pray for him because he's in Leviticus right now and he's teaching on the section of scripture about bodily admissions. And I'm like, I will definitely pray for you. Pray for you. I'm sure he's not really pumped about that. But he's teaching it. Why? Because he's faithful to the word. So he says, follow my example. That's what we should be doing as a church is following Paul's example. Paul was following Christ's example. And so we imitate him. Verse 17 he says, for this reason, I sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Who will remind you of my ways in Christ. As I teach everywhere, in every church, as Paul is continuing, staying on the mission that God has given him. He said, now some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming. So the, the thought, well, Paul's not coming here, so we can do whatever we want. Who needs Paul? We have all these other guys. We don't need Paul. That's what they're They're all prideful. So... You see pride being a big thing in this church. In verse 17, he says, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. See the difference? He's saying, I don't care what you say. I care what I see. Have you gotten to a place in your life where you care more about someone's actions than their words? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, when I get there, you can say whatever you want, but I'm going to see what I'm going to see. What was he looking for? The power of God working there. And you can't fake that. He says, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but it is in power he says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, he's saying, are you going to listen to this letter and correct course so that I can come and we can have fellowship and be on the same page and rejoice in the Lord together? Or if not, I'll come with a rod. In other words, if I have to, I'll come in a hard way. And why does Paul say that? Because he he knows how important this is. He knows if he would just ease off a little bit. He knows the power of darkness and the power of the world to come into the church and to crush the church and to make the church nothing. So he's saying, if I come, I'm going to, Come with a rod if I have to, because I'm going to push out the things of the world. And he's saying that I care more about that than I do about coming and just having this big celebration. When in reality, that there's serious problems here. So, what are some of the problems? Well, we've been talking about some, but... In chapter 5, verse 1, yes, we're getting into another chapter. He says, it, it it is exactly reported, so here's a specific incident that he's hearing about, that there is sexual immorality among you as such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. See? So he's saying you're in Corinth. It's probably the most hedonistic place in all of the area, all of Greece, all of Asia Minor, probably too. Europe, Asia, and he's saying, and he's saying they even have a laws laws against incest. We don't know if this is was a step mom or a biological mom. But either way he's saying that even people who are not believers, they have laws against something that's going on in the body of Christ there. And as, as he's addressing the specific issue, it's amazing how much sexual immorality Plays a role in the downfall of many spiritual people and many churches. I bet you've all heard stories. And that's because Satan is always looking to tempt, and this is a powerful, effective tool of Satan sexual immorality. So he uses it. The thing is, in this church, they actually prided themselves of the fact that they were so tolerant. They were tolerant. They were all loving. So this heinous sexual immorality that was in the church in a member, they would be saying to that member something like, it's okay, God loves you. Love is love. We're a tolerant church. We're a loving church. And they're actually boasting about that. And Paul is saying, this is something that is even bad in the world. And you're boasting in this. So they, they didn't see the importance of having standards within the church. People might even said, well, we don't want to be legalistic and we want to be tolerant we want to be loving so we embrace anybody who wants to come in because love is love and Paul is saying this is a serious situation in your church that you're actually proud about so in verse 2 he says you're puffed up and have not rather mourned so you this should this should be causing your congregation to be in tears over this. That he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So how do you deal with something like that? He, just, he says right there, this is an unrepentant sinner. Maybe he didn't even know he was supposed to repent because everybody's saying it's okay. God loves you anyway. And Paul is saying he needs to be taken away. In verse 3, he says, For I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit. I'm not there personally, physically with you, but I'm here to tell you because I know what's going on. I've already judged as though I was there him who has done this deed. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, this is how serious this is. Paul is saying, look, you cannot have fellowship with this person. He's saying, deliver this person to Satan. What he means is, You have to cast them out of the church. He cannot fellowship in your fellowship anymore. That's how you keep the fellowship pure. Now, mind you, this is unrepentant sin. But do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying the purpose of casting someone out is actually to save them. Because he's saying without the comfort and support of the fellowship and the love of the body towards this individual, he, he's saying he's going to be separated from that and Satan will have its, his way with this person to the extent that, and the hope is, and it actually happened. We find out in Second Corinthians that he actually came back to the Lord. But his sin became so bad to him And that's more important, that his soul would be right at the expense of his flesh. This is how serious this is. This is how serious a believer's unrepentant sin is. And this is exactly what we see Primarily, in my opinion, in the church in America, is the embracing of people like this without telling them that they need to repent or they're in jeopardy of going to hell. We have to be more concerned about someone's eternal destiny to the extent where we lovingly tell them, look, this is a sin and you must repent or you're going to go to hell. Instead of saying, it's okay. God loves you. He loves everybody. And you can continue on. And it doesn't matter. And that is, we see that, don't we? That is categorically unbiblical. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. And so here's an example. Verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Why? That you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Leaven sin. Write a picture of sin. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not With old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of what? Read those to me, please. Sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. That's it. So that's what the church is built on. And that does not mean that we don't sin. We do sin but we must repent and we must keep a short account with God we must keep ourselves close to him because of leaven or sin has a tendency to grow so when the Bible compares sin to leaven leaven is what makes bread bread as we like it versus Unleavened or like the cracker, kind of like when we do communion. But that leaven has a tendency to spread. And in our own life personally, if we are to think that we can keep this sin in, at bay, we can keep it the same size, we can keep it secret, we can keep it away from everybody, we can manage it, When we do that, we do not understand sin. Sin does not stay the the same, it grows. Sin is progressive. Sin also is not self-contained. Sin always spreads. We may not know it or think that it does, But I promise you, it will affect the way you treat other people. It'll affect your attitude. It'll affect the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It'll affect your walk with the Lord, which affects other people. Sin will for sure affect you, grow, and affect those around you. And God has given us, as believers, a way to deal with that, and it's repentance. Repentance means that we agree with God about our sin. We say we're sorry and we turn from it. And God gives us the power to walk in the light and not in the darkness. But we can never be okay with it. We can never be okay with a consistent, continual life of sin. We can never be okay because it'll take us down. this is the warning. Paul's saying, I'm telling you to warn you, not to shame you. But we have to take sin very seriously. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So he, he's saying, this tells us that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. Because he wrote another letter that we don't have. And in that letter he, he says if if there is a, someone among you, he's talking about believers, that is in sexual immorality or sexual sin and not repenting, He says you should not hang out with that person. He says, do not keep company with that person. Verse 10, he says, yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world. Or with covetousness or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. He's saying this applies to fellow believers. So those who are in the world and not saved, you expect that. And he's he's saying you don't have to remove yourself from them, nor necessarily should you, because you may be in their life to be a light for them. To hear the gospel, to see your walk of life. So you don't have to remove yourself from them because they're sinners. Sinners. But if there's somebody in the body of Christ that is an unrepentant sin here, specifically sexual sin, he says you shouldn't hang out with them. He says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are on the inside? Speaking of in. The church are true believers versus people who are not believers. So it's interesting because he actually says that there is a place, because of the possibility of sin infecting a body of Christ, that there's a place to deal with that, and it, it should be dealt with. But those on the outside, that, he, he's kind of saying that's not really our business that to stand in judgment of them. But he says you have every right to do that with those within the body of Christ. In verse 13, he says, but those who are outside, God judges. That's his deal. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Again, a believer in Christ that's unrepentant. I think we can get one more. Chapter 6. I don't think this will be a record, but it's not too bad. So he says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So he's talking about another issue now. Do you not know? He uses that phrase... In verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 9, in verse 15, in verse 16, and verse 19. In this chapter, he's stressing things that they should know probably because he taught these things and probably because these are points of emphasis for him when he was there. But also, you remember, he wanted to speak to them as spiritual, but he couldn't because they're so fleshly. So now he has to sort of remind them. He said, did you not know? Almost like surprised. Did you not know that? Or maybe also sort of in a... uh, condemning way like you you should have known this so should you have not known so a big thing that was happening in addition to the sexual immorality in addition to the infighting and the divisions was there were those within the church were making sport of suing each other and when that, that was a big thing in this culture those in Corinth and Greece they loved they loved law, juries. Some of the juries would be 100 people. They loved it. Like, you probably don't want to be on jury duty. They wanted to be. This was amazing. They loved all this stuff. And so it was a very litigious society. It was like a spectacle. It was like a sport. And so they're suing each other. And Paul is saying, what does the world think? of this church when you're fighting and then you're bringing your fight in the public domain for everybody to see. In verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you guys know that? And if the world will be judged by you, Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So, a couple things. So, saints, who are saints? Yes, it's a football team, but it's not talking about that. This is talking about all believers. All believers are considered saints. There's not a separate category for people who do special things that get in a special club. All believers are considered saints. And he's saying, if you're a saint, there's one day you're going to sit in judgment of the world. What he's referring to is the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. That believers or saints are going to have positions of judgment over the things that are going on in the world. This speaks volumes to the multifaceted aspects of our eternity in Christ. So not only will we be raptured and spend seven years with Christ, while the tribulations going on in the earth, we will actually come back with Him. We'll be there at the Battle of Armageddon as he conquers, He comes back with a white horse. The church will be with him. We'll be here on Earth for the thousand-year reign when Satan is bound. And that will be the time where we rule with him. Then the new heaven and new earth after that will be, we don't know after that, that's probably it, but that's, we'll be with him forever. That's the whole point. But he says, you're you're so small-minded in your thinking because understand that I have given you this eventual position of sitting in judgment of the whole world. But yet, in your own individual problems, you can't even work those out between yourselves. In other words, he's saying, in, in a sense, that if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Word of God. Every single believer should be able themselves to come to a resolution and peace and harmony in those relationships if those relationships will be surrendered to God. And in every relationship problem that there is with believers, it's not a relationship problem, it's a lordship problem. It's a self-problem. It's a carnal problem. It's me, myself, and I problem against you problem. But see, if we're all in it for the glory of God, then we should be able to work all things out. So that's what Paul's saying. This is so ridiculous. You're out in front of the world bickering about property line. I don't know what they're bickering about. Property lines. And you're fighting about who's what and who gets this and the world seeing this and you're going to be judging the world. You're living so low compared to what you are in Christ. So he says it again in verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Did you guys know that? So we're going to sit in judgment of the world and the millennial kingdom and then we're going to judge Angels. What are we going to do to judge angels? He's talking about fallen angels, I believe. The other angels, nothing to judge. But he he establishes the position of the saints, of those who are saved and are in Christ, such a high position. And he's imploring those that are at this church to understand who you are in Christ. In verse... He says, even then, you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I I say this to your shame. So before he wasn't shaming them, now he is. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? That's the problem, I guess. It's hard to accept when we're wrong. Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Neither fornicators, fornication means any sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and woman. So it's a broad term. Fornicators, nor idolaters, that's putting anything before Christ in our love and adoration, even worship, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. So what's the difference between those terms? So here, when he refers to homosexuals, when it says homosexuals, he's talking about male prostitution that was prevalent in the culture. In fact, 14 out of the 15 Roman emperors were homosexual or bisexual. Nero had a young boy that he had castrated and married, and then later married another man. So that was very accepted. Socrates was, at minimum, bisexual. Plato, as well. So that was going on. So when he says homosexual, actually, he's referring, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He's actually referring to the effeminate Role in a male homosexual relationship. When he says sodomite, he's referring to the dominant or aggressor role in a homosexual relationship. Sorry, I don't enjoy talking about that, but that's you need to know that. And then he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. That's people who like to have bar fights nor extortioners. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God. So a couple things. One, something that's very prevalent in our culture is within the church even to say that homosexuality is not a sin. So when you have, this is one of the big lists, that, and this is where people go go to. This is one of the biggies. very clear. Romans 1, 18 through 32 as well. But the, the thing is, if you were to say then homosexuality is not a sin, then why would you just pick that one out of the list? So Paul made a list of different things. So is adultery not a sin? How, can we lift that one out? Just, can we lift, how can you lift any of those out? You can't. They're all sins, but also they're all sins. So sometimes we think, well, one sin is really bad. No, they're not so bad. They're all sins. I I do believe sexual sins, and we're going to see that in a second. I have to go really quick, but sexual sins have a particular segregation to them because Of how powerful they are to destroy a person but here's the thing you and I are on that list we're one of those or many of those but in verse 11 it says and such were that's past tense some of you how come we're not that anymore Because we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That's why the church can never accept a clear sin that the Bible reveals and say it's not a sin because we're condemning a person to hell because there's no chance for them to get saved if we don't say that's a sin, but Jesus can save you. That's a sin, and guess what? I sin too, but Jesus saved me. He can save you from that sin by putting your faith and His blood will wash all that sin away. So verse 12, He says, All things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for, for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, he says, I live my life in such a way where maybe there's some things. He's not talking about sexual sin and all that stuff. So he's saying, maybe there's some things that I can do because of the liberty. That, and he's using the term and the phrases that they're using in Corinth saying, we have liberty. So that we have liberty, we can do whatever we want. We're saved, so we can do whatever we want. Paul's saying that's not, how, that's not how it works. But he's saying that the way I make my decisions and live my life is I do it in a way where I, I'm not being brought under the power of that sin. I make my choices based on what God wants me to do and not what I want to do. In verse 13, he gives an example, foods are for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. That was probably a popular saying at the time. In other words, that's where where people will say, well, you know, my bodily appetites, if it feels good, do it type of thing. Basically, they're saying, well, I get hungry, so I eat. I have sex drive, so I have sex. And they're trying to justify that. But Paul says, that's what you're saying. But in reality, God will destroy both. He says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that bodies... Your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot, a word for a prostitute, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of, about how when two people, a male and female, come together sexually, that they're actually joined spiritually together. and He's saying then that that's not how we should use our bodies for that. Our bodies are meant to be used to glorify the Lord. He says, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So that's where the sexual sins have their own particular punishment and judgment that comes. And he he speaks about how it affects one spiritually. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price or at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he gives us the final motivation for how we should use our body and he he says that we we have been bought with a price we go back to the blood of jesus christ that was shed on the cross for our sins and he says then if we are his then he knows best how to govern us so what we give to him we also allow him to govern and when he governs us, he does it in a such, such a way where it doesn't take away from us, but it adds to us. It blesses us. It builds us up. And Satan is always looking to rip off, to counterfeit, to steal what God has made good and blessed. And he's given us a way to live and to do things. And Satan is always looking To destroy the work of God. That's why he says, commit your ways to the Lord. Commit your bodies to the Lord. You're not yours. You're God's. And so live your life in a way that glorifies God. So three chapters, good job. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. And these are some heavy chapters, Lord. And I thank you for them. I pray for our church and I pray for just the purity and integrity of it. I pray uh, if you've brought any particular sins to mind during this time that we'd repent of them. You tell us, Lord, that um, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I know that you don't want any of us living in a way that's harmful to us. So, Lord, I pray that we just take this opportunity now just to repent, say we're sorry and And begin to walk in the light and not in darkness, Lord. And So I thank you for our church body. May you maintain the purity of it. May it look like it's supposed to look. May you be glorified here. And may we be like a lamp, a light on a hill, Lord, that draws people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.